Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a, it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. I'm not just writing history. I am making it. I have the brain of a historian and the clapback of a comedian. You better come with sources because I always check footnotes. Welcome back to another episode of Historians on Housewives. You're here with me, Casey. Dr. J. Mill, the millionaires. Max Spear. Still hoping this check clears. <laughs> <laughs> Today we're with Allison Madar, and this gives a chance for um, particularly Max and I to have a conversation with someone who does similar work. So I'm apologizing in advance that it's going to get super nerdy, super into the weeds of what historians do, but also very interesting. Um, Professor Madar works on um, the issue of unfreedom in earlier Virginia, in 17th and 18th century Virginia. So when we speak about unfreedom, we're talking about uh, people who were held in bondage, um, chattel slavery, and people who were indentured servants that would come to what becomes the U.S. and and labor for a period of five to seven years, depending on which expert you speak to. Um, and so it's an episode that we could talk all day about in terms of just what we do as historians. But of course, this is Historians on Housewives, so we're pairing this with Bravo conversations. And I feel like by pairing it with Bravo, like the three of you could really you know, go off to the races with I <laughs> the think ins so. and outs I of think these so. conversations. So there's a disclaimer, and you'll hear it again in the middle of the show. In no way are we making one-to-one, as Allison said, one-to-one comparisons between experience of enslaved and bound people in early America and kind of the penal system that we end up with today. Um, or the experiences that we see on Bravo today. Or the experiences we see on Bravo today. So um, you will hear us going back and forth, but we want to acknowledge that uh, Jennifer Morgan says that slavery is um, a phenomenon in need of a metaphor, meaning there is nothing you can you can do to to quantify it, to qualify it, to compare it. There's nothing else that you can compare it to. And so we're not trying to do that, even though that might be how the conversation seems. We're very attuned to time and place. I think a better way to frame this would be to look at the afterlife of slavery. Um, And we see the afterlife in slavery in the penal justice system, in structured inequality, in gender dynamics, um, and even differences between women 
um, and different groups, uh, cisgender identified women, what have you. You have many legacies and aftermaths of slavery and, and race politics in this country that we're still dealing with. And that then leads us into surveillance, surveillance of the state, and other things. So maybe when we talk about Bravo, and this is a big gift to Bravo. This is a big, like, I'm putting them in the di- discussion with the Hallmark scholars on how this country was was founded. Well, and this is the point of what it is that we're doing here, right? That we're taking Bravo television and using it as a means to talk about what historians actually work on, what we do with a really, really broad population that might be really unfamiliar with what it is that historians do, right? So these really aren't supposed to be um, a one-to-one comparison, but instead a way of talking about these resonances, right? To get people to kind of dip the toe into the the things that we talk about and think about every day. Right. If I had a graduate student listening to some of our episodes, I would say, please always have your pen and paper handy because we throw out a lot of citations that you'll need when it comes to your exams. And these are some of the most, um, could I say, cutting-edge conversations in the profession, in academia. Bravo Demics are doing some of the most important work in academia. <laughs> Do you, can you tell I've hung around in millennials? Millennials are always about the new scholarship on or the definitive whatever. This is the definitive podcast that brings academic scholarship and reality TV together. Welcome, Allison Madar. Thank you so much for being here today. Yes, thank you for having me. I'm excited to talk. So would you like to share your Housewives tagline with everybody? Sure. Um, This took some doing. Um, I was trying to be creative. Um, But what I came up with was, thanks to historians on Housewives, there's no longer shame in my Bravo game. Yay! Love it. (laughs) Love it. Yeah, I don't think there should be any Bravo shame. I think it's so educational. (laughs) as do I and you actually have your own special claim to fame in like kind of this housewives world because you have a housewives connection from your time teaching in Chicago yes um so I was teaching at a independent school in kind of the um, north of Chicago in the suburbs and um one of the housewives from the first season of OC, um, Kimberly Bryant, her and her family moved to the Chicagoland area. And um, I was walking kind of um, from the dining hall back to um, the building. And one of my colleagues stopped me and said, did you see the housewife? (laughs) I said, what are you talking about? She said, there's a housewife here. And so we did some research and found that um, the Bryants had moved and that they were enrolling their daughter in, um, in our school. And so, um, so there were, there were moments for the next couple of years that I was there that, um, my friend and I would have always look for the Bryants at, at various school events, um, and, and try to talk to her as much as we could, um, because we were a little starstruck by, by the whole thing. So <laughs> that's very cool. Um, and Kimberly Bryant, I believe is the housewife from season one of Orange County. She was blonde, very skinny, and I believe she had been dealing with breast cancer. Yes, I think that's right. Yeah, and so she only did that one season. Um, Mm -hmm. But how exciting that you have your own real-life housewives connection. Yes, my my one kind of claim to 
to a semi-famous person. So <laughs> Six degrees to Kimberly Bryant. <laughs> or one degree, I guess it'd be. <laughs> right. <laughs> how did you get into Bravo, and how do the shows shape your life as a Bravo-demic? So I've been watching from the beginning. Um, and so that was kind of started when I was teaching high school, you know, it was a kind of a boarding school. So it was, um, I was always kind of on when I was working. So it was a way for me just to decompress, to get kind of caught up in some other people's often petty drama. Um, and you know, some of my friends were also watching. So it was something for us to talk about. Um, and you know, I can't help now as I've followed these shows for, for years and new shows have kind of come and gone. Um, you know, I can't help but watching them with my kind of academic or critical historical eye. So, so there's no way to, to kind of watch these things without, um, kind of finding, finding themes along the lines of my work in kind of class and status and power and whiteness and, and race. And so, so I'm kind of always bumping on those things when I see them as they come up in these shows. Can I ask you a follow-up on that? Sure. Are you current with Orange County? I am. Okay. So the three of us have been talking a lot about this difference between Kelly Dodd and the train accusation versus the way that uh -huh. they treat Bronwyn and Tamara's threesomes. Uh-huh. Or romantic, uh, romantic liaison. Let's just call yeah. it was what it was off the, the last episode or two episodes ago where Rowan and, and Tamara were This was this drunk. week. That was this week. Okay. But the way that they're really harping on Kelly and the train seems like this is kind of these intersections, at least to me, of these issues of race and power um, where it's so taboo, you know, should Kelly have had that experience versus, you know, almost the celebratory way that they talk about Bronwyn's threesomes. Yeah, I think that's interesting. What I found interesting about this week though was that was Vicky's reaction to all of the Tamara Bronwyn yeah. mm -hmm. um interactions and just how offended she seemed, um, which lines up with I think what we know about her politics. Um but um but there is there is a way that that the the shaming of Kelly, um, who's taken it all in stride, especially this week being on the train and all these things. But um, the 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 way they talk about her um, kind of interactions or alleged interactions, and and the way that they are celebrating most of them celebrating Bronwyn. Um, a threesome or just a fascination with it um, and, and Tamara kind of jumping on board and being kind of eager to, to play along um, with the fun in that um, is there is a stark difference in the way these, these two um, issues are being, being treated and discussed even among the women. Well, before we go any further, since we brought up Vicky, we brought up Tamara, um, who are your top three Bravo celebrities, and why do they have that distinction? Why do they rank so high with you? Yeah, um, this was hard because, you know, it's, it is often season by season, <laughs> people who, who I, I kind of like or, or kind of um, 
are, are, are critical of, but I think in, in the long run, um, some of these women, especially the first two, um, they have characteristics that, that I, you know, I'm not, I, I'm not a pot stirrer. I'm not one that kind of eagerly jumps into drama. So that might be part of the reason, um, that, that some of these stand out for me, but one woman that I've really, um, enjoyed seeing her arc, um, is Bethany Frankel. And it's been interesting to watch her evolution from that very first season of New York through where she is now. And, you know, I watched, um, that short series about her in, um, is his name Jason? Yeah. Jason Hobby. Hobby. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Like or them getting married. I watched that. And, and so, so it's been interesting to see kind of her evolution in these shows and kind of the empire really that she's built for herself. Um, so she's one. And I really like Giselle Bryant on Real Housewives of Potomac. I think she's, um, I think she's hilarious. And I also think she knows exactly what she's doing sometimes um, in some of the, <laughs> the drama that she inserts herself into. Um, and what I like about her too is I, I like to see her relationship with her daughters and um, how she is working on that as much as she can to give them each individually what they need at any given time. So that's been um, kind of fun to see that side of her. Um, and then I'm not sure if this last one counts, but I really like um, Padma Lakshmi as the host of um, Top Chef. Um, she totally counts. Her, yeah. yeah. Okay. Others have said All her. Right. Others mm-hmm. have said her. You are in good company. Okay. All right. And, you know, I don't know what it is. I just think that she does a great job as the host of this um this show and she just seems like she's kind of down to earth and and i just really i think like she would be someone that i'd want to be friends with and so i guess that's why she kind of moves into into my third spot there i feel like you usually hear the high-end you know chef industry being talked about as a very male space too Mm -hmm. and so i think i think that her presence as this female host um I think it's important and I think that she does a great job in yes. in her role on that show yeah I agree um when thinking about shows like below deck below deck med and to a lesser extent flipping out before Jeff fired Zoila um and Vanderpump rules in the early seasons, but especially when Kristen was fired from Sir, and we see the kitchen staff celebrate, we see interactions between people of different classes. These shows are more unique on the network in the way that they are actually focused or were for a time intent on following the lives of people working for the wealthy. While some of these castmates are put in compromising positions, you are also interested in bringing the cameraman, cameramen, sorry, camera people, I really should say, um, from these shows into the conversation. How do the vulnerability of those on the show and filming the show resonate with the people you study who worked in 18th century households? Um, Yeah, so I think it's... um it's important to bring in these people behind the cameras uh, because it seems in some shows as of late, if we can call it breaking a fourth wall, that's been happening more with kind of more on camera interaction with these, with these cameramen. Um, And, and the thing here that, that shows up um, is, is they're, they're present 
their presence in these intimate spaces in in these Bravo Leverty's homes um, and trying not to be there while they're very much there. Um, and so, so they're behind the cameras and they're kind of documenting these, these people's lives, but, um, but they're, they have been in the, in the case of, um, of kind of the, the Darby, um, Michael Darby situation Mm -hmm. are, are being, being brought in front of the camera. Um, and I think, I think there's something to be said about these people of different economic statuses of different classes of different ethnicities that are being asked to do this, do some sort of labor, um, in these, in these richer households. Um, and, and the way that you can't avoid interacting sometimes, um, whether positively or negatively with, with these people in this kind of in 18th century households, you have unfree laborers, um, you have enslaved, um, people of African descent, you have mixed race servants, you have white servants, um, working, um, in close proximity to those who own them or own their labor, um, and the power dynamics that, that are at play there. Well, this is exactly what I wanted to touch on because we have the cameramen from Real Housewives of Potomac and mm-hmm. the case against Michael Darby. We also have the cameraman who um, allegedly assaulted. We're going to say oh, allegedly. No, Nini assaulted Nini, him. Nini assaulted him. Right. Allegedly. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, there are kind of loose parallels you could make. Um, mm-hmm. But I want to talk a little bit more about labor and probably go where you were going, which is like there's private labor, there's public labor, and then there's the moment where the laborers are finally seen um, mm-hmm. and, and how problematic that actually could be for them in some ways. So either, t- obviously, in the 18th century household. What other kind of parallels can we make? Max, the surveillance uh, scholar of slavery and surveillance, is looking at me like I do not know what I'm talking about. No, no, no. <laughs> I was, um, I'm like, still kind of forming this thought, but that like that thought, especially about the Vanderpump rules, um, um, cooks and like the people that Mm -hmm. actually work Mm -hmm. there day in and day out, show how little work the cast members of Vanderpump rules do. Right. Like there is no way. And it's partially because of how much they get paid to be on the show. They don't need to like, be making pump teenies anymore but like <laughs> but there is this sort of if they show too much then it deal it, it like it, it demystifies it, almost now we're seeing the wizard of oz right like the whole right. thing proves to just be a little guy in the back room Right. This is what early scholars of, you know, women's history on the plantation talked about. Victoria Bynum, Catherine Clinton, you know, you mm-hmm. have this great, you you all know this at the table, but for our listeners, you have this great right. plantation household that mm-hmm. looks, you know, wonderful and statuesque. There's, you know, African-Americans enslaved. And then sometimes you could walk around the back of certain households, more middling households, and you'd see white women milking a cow. And that in some ways is not the distinction um, you're not supposed to be able to see labor that's being done and certainly not if you're a particular kind of person. So there's, there's that like if, if, if a white woman is seen doing labor that slaves would otherwise be doing, that's kind of a mark on their, you know, a, a ding against their, their claim to gentility. Um, 
But I want to talk about Zoila and and Jeff. I've been upset about this relationship for so long. I feel like there's so mm-hmm. much here that we just want you to weigh in on right now, Allison. Just tell me more <laughs> yeah, and, about. And I'm I mean, so glad you're bringing it up because it was it, it's obvious, and it was one that I you know haven't even you know considered. I mean, Zoila and Jeff. I I think this is a perfect example of um, like a paternal system because he yeah. bought you know he he paid for her medical insurance he he bought all kinds of things for he her. sent her for like a facelift he sent her for a facelift because you know this is beverly hills and there was always this but he she needed to be beholden to him in his mind she should never speak back she should never disagree what she did all the time but he really really jeff 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 you treated zoila terribly mm-hmm. yes so do you have anything to add are there any other kind of dynamics or character i'm sorry bravo liberties that we can parallel and kind of um, abusing their laborers, for example? Well, I, I think Jeff abused all of his laborers. Um, including his husband. And not, Absolutely. In, 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 yes, including his husband. Um, but the, you know, I, I do want to touch on, you know, that Jeff Zoila relationship a bit in terms of, you know, his, it's also interesting because his work, was also in, he, he worked from home. And so there was an overlap there um, with the types of labor that are going on within his home, but also the power that, that he has, or he thinks he has, because he's the one, it's, it's his house. He's dictating kind of the labor that's being done in his home. And he's also providing, like you said, these, um, these gifts to Zoila um, and, thinking that he's doing her a favor by giving her, you know, a day off or half a day off. Um, And just these expectations that come, I think not only with his power of being, being the boss, but also being, being a a man and, um, and obviously the, uh, you know, the, the racial and ethnic differences between him and Zoila, I think in some ways he felt like he was saving her or, um, you know, giving her a better life than anything she could have ever had oh, without yes, he him. He was the great white savior. He was the great white yeah. hope. Mm-hmm. Uh, absolutely. And, you know, and that I think um, can parallel, I mean, one-to-one comparisons between uh, these things and, and kind of all of the things that we study from the past are, are kind of nearly impossible, but there are themes that run through in terms of paternalism and providing um, certain services and, and goods until someone is out of that household with enslaved laborers. Obviously, that's never, but in terms of um, temporarily bound laborers, um, like indentured servants, um, you know, providing these things in a four to seven year time frame before they're uh, supposed to be out on their own, which rarely ever happens. Um but there, there, is, there are power structures at work here that are hard to ignore. Um, and sometimes that leads into, you know, you trust these people in your home, but you don't trust them enough to not surveil them or to not question them when something doesn't seem right. And what about the way that someone like Jeff especially kind of comes down very harshly on the people that work for him, Zoila being one of these examples? What kind of parallels do you see between that kind of behavior and the unfree laborers that you study in the 18th century? 
Yeah, that's, um, you know, he, his abuse is more verbal. Um, and his, uh, what's interesting about Jeff too, is that he always tries to, he's tries to make, take it like it's, he's being sarcastic or that he's joking um, when it's very clear that he's not, um, you know, a lot of more of the abuse in 18th century households is, is more physical in nature. Um, it's hard to get at all of it because all we can look at is kind of master's journals and mistress's journals. And, um, other than people like William Byrd, who never thought that kind of his most egregious abuses would, would be made public. Um, you know, a lot of these, um, heads of household aren't necessarily writing all of these things down. Um, but you can see it, um, for me, I can see it sometimes, um, in the court records when servants especially are going before the court to complain against their masters for some of these abuses. And so you can get at some of it there. Yeah. I want to put, sorry, I, I jumped was, in front of before, before, um, <laughs> for our listeners who wouldn't know who William Byrd is, do you mind mm-hmm. telling us about William Byrd? He's a, um, wealthy planter in, in Virginia. Um, one of the wealthiest and most powerful, his you know, entire family, um, kind of, holds important political positions in Virginia for, for many decades. Um, and why we know. Was it 17th or 18th century for William Byrd? Well, um, William Byrd, there's William Byrd one and two. Right. So it's 17th into 18th. That's right, Jessica, right? That was Casey. Yes. But yeah, that's right. <laughs> yes. Could you tell us a little bit more about these day-to-day interactions within that 18th century household? Sure. Um, you know, the the people, the servants that I work on, so I, I work on what I call de- temporarily unfree laborers. And so I include in this um, indentured servants, so who signed contracts before they arrived in Virginia. I work on um, customary servants who arrived and then um, then signed contracts once they were were on the shores. Um, I, and in, included in this group, too, I, I include convict servants. Um, and I also include a group of um, people that I refer to as locally bound servants. So um, people, mostly women, who never intended to be bound out as servants, but due to life circumstances, um, were, were made unfree. Um, and, and by the 18th century, um, servants, the numbers are diminishing significant, significantly as um as Virginians are turning more and more to enslaved labor, um, but they are present. They are there. And um, in domestic spaces, most of them are, are women working in households, um, often in the households of either small um, slaveholders or, or in households of people who can't afford enslaved labor um, and are trying to, my argument is trying to model um, these, these, kind of poorer farmers um, trying to model the life of these larger planters and these these masters who own larger numbers of enslaved laborers and trying to ingratiate themselves to those um, those slaveholders by by treating um, their temporarily um, unfree laborers um, as though they uh, you know exerting exerting their power over them in a way that, slaveholders exert their power over enslaved laborers. Um, and so they're working in these intimate spaces. They're, um, 
they're doing kind of the typical domestic labor of of the 18th century in in that these homes washing cleaning um, etc um, but but doing it um, while also being vulnerable to to violence um, both verbal um, physical and and sexual excellent thank you so much so on that same line where you just left off, the other place to really extend this conversation is with Thomas Ravenel in Southern China. Mm. He's had numerous sexual assault allegations throughout the years, the most recent coming from his children's nanny. And in this case, mm-hmm. he actually admitted in court to being so forcibly rough with her, like forcing himself on her, that he actually broke the underwire of her bra and she was bleeding and it bruised. And so there was pictures and everything. And even after admitting to like, yes, I, you know, tried to force myself on her. It didn't work. And yes, I agree. I like made those injuries. Um, all he really had to do was admit that. And he was allowed to pay a $500 fine and he avoided jail time altogether for the case. So thinking about Thomas Ravenel in a place like Charleston, what does this say about power, prestige, and wealth that continues to be passed along through families because of slavery? And what kinds of parallels do the slavery scholars at the table here see today between um, someone like Thomas Ravenel and the way that law was adjudicated in early America? Okay, yeah. Um, So... I think, like you said, Casey, uh, having this conversation about someone in Charleston where, and on a show like Summer Southern Charm that embraces their, the histories of their family going all the way back to kind of the first people that arrived in South Carolina. This is a conversation that has gone on um, in this show since its beginning. Um, and so there is a through line here of power, of wealth, of whiteness, um, and and that power and that wealth is part of the reason that Thomas Ravenel got fined a five hundred dollars and there was no jail time um, because of the connections um, that he has and the money that he has and the prestige of his family um, and and things like this happened in the courts in Virginia. In the 18th century, um, there are many cases that I've come across where, um, again, servants are allowed by law to complain against mistreatment by their masters. Um, But one of the caveats of that law is that is only after a servant complains for a second time, so gets to court a second time, can they be removed from the household. So on its face, it looks like, oh, servants are given this, this freedom that enslaved people aren't, um, and they can complain against their masters and be removed from household. However, if someone is living within an abusive household and they get to court once, I'm not sure how likely it is that that person is ever going to get to court a second time. When the people sitting on the court and hearing these cases are saying, oh, just go back to the house, we'll reprimand, we'll talk to your master, and everything will be fine. Because those people, those justices of the peace, those people sitting on the courts, are most likely friends of, business partners with, 
that master. So this early legal system then is kind of green lighting this serial abuse. Right, right. Yeah, I don't think anyone would disagree with that. I was just setting it up for <laughs> listeners. No would, no, thank you. Thank you for setting that up. Um, I, I guess I want to say talk about the people that would actually bring these suits or cases, mm-hmm. right? Um, because it, it had to be dangerous, um, right? which is basically what you're alluding to. I know a lot about African-Americans that brought petitions after the American Revolution. I wonder if you could tell me kind of, because I know you know these answers, the demographics of who you see bringing cases, just off the top of your head. Is it primarily indentured servants? Is it men? Is it women? Uh, the the cases of abuse are, are pretty even between men and women. Um, although the cases of servant women bringing abuse are often more brutal. Um, and, and in... In a, several cases, it's the wife who is exacting that abuse, um, and and so there. So it's kind of an interesting dynamic there in terms of of kind of mistresses, if we can use that word, um, kind of exacting uh, brutal um, abuses on on their servant women. Um, and there's one case that. Um, I've written about that, you know, a, a wife had already killed in decades before, like two other servant women that were in the house. And, but the, this family was still allowed to bring more servant women into their, into their home to, to do work for them. And when, um, when one of them came to court to complain they didn't take into account the fact, the history of violence in this household. They sent her back and um, she did complain again, but never made it back to the court. And the, the master, her master um, came to court and said that she had been sold um, across the river. And that's why she wasn't there. Um, I'm not so sure she was sold across the river. Um, but that maybe she she, do you think she was taken care of? I think she was taken care of so that she would not appear again in front of the court. I can't know that for sure because the record disappears, but the history um, of violence in that household suggests that. Can I ask you two follow-up questions or really more statements, I suppose? So one is that I find one of the most difficult things with students in talking about U.S. history is that they seem always too shocked and like very much want to push back against this um, truth that white mistresses are helping to uphold this system and Mm -hmm. are themselves perpetuating violence. Students always seem to really struggle with that. Um, So could one, could you address this point a little bit more? And two, would master's punishment um, legally look anything like Thomas's or would it have been even more lax? You mean, than, do they have to pay a fee? Yeah. Like would they, they have paid a fine? Had it even gotten that far? How rare would it have been for it to get that far? So is Thomas still pretty representative of this um, kind of treatment or it was even what he received in 2019 way more is intensive than what, would have happened to a master in the 18th century. So the experience of Thomas 
as a white man, right, an elite white man, descendant of these families, right? Is it these- similar to how some um, masters might just get off with a, a light sentence? I mm-hmm. would imagine. And Allison, I'll step back from the mic. I would imagine, and I could be completely wrong. You know what? Why don't I just do what you're supposed to do sometimes and be quiet and let the expert <laughs> talk? Go ahead, Allison. I'm interested in what you have to say. So what would happen to the masters would be that they would just, the servant would be removed from their household um, and they wouldn't be fined. It wasn't in, in the laws, in the statutes that they would be fined. Um, that, that servant would just be removed from the household. Um, but that servant would then just be sent somewhere else to complete their contract. So it didn't free the servant Um once they were removed, they would just be, their contract would then be um, given to someone else and they'd finish out their term of service, whatever it was, um, in another household. And the mistresses? Um, and, and in terms of the mistresses, you know, this is, this is something I, I'm still playing with and, and working with is the violence of these, these mistresses. They would not be punished for the violence that... Um, that they exacted, um, they would be told to stop, um, kind of in some of the cases that I found, but, but it wasn't something that, um, that they were necessarily fined for, um, just kind of warnings would be, you know, they'd have to, they would have to pay the court fees that, that brought them, brought their servant to court. Um, but other than that, um, there's not large fines that go along with these things. Um, what I've found um, in the in the particular cases that that I've looked at, but I do think that 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 students are surprised when when you talk about how white women are just as involved in perpetuating and upholding this system. Um, and but but it's an it's an important part of this, and there are um, you know it's it's important to understand that they're not just kind of going along to get along that they're. So I was just going to follow up and say, you know, um, one of the things I like about Thavolia Glimp's book is she actually says, I don't know the quote directly. Is but this Out of the House of Bondage? Out of the House of Bondage. Thank mm-hmm. you, Thavolia Glimp, Duke University, Out of the House of Bondage. Um, she says that the mistresses were the public face of the, the slave master's anger, something to that effect. But right. basically, you know, same thing we've been saying. They didn't do anything, well... In some cases, they could be worse. And if you look at the testimony of enslaved people, um, they might not—they um, might look like they're complying in public, but in private, they were telling stories of uh, the mistresses as hellcats and, right. you know, just just horrible people. You know, mistresses would abuse the child of um, an enslaved woman because the slave woman may have been raped by the woman's husband. So that's one of the parallels that carries all the way past the civil war, right? It's mm-hmm. just this mm-hmm. um, violence and, and, and kind of, is, what did I say? Intragendered violence, uh, women on women violence, but women could also, mm-hmm. mistresses also abused um, enslaved men and would mm-hmm. force some of them to have sex with them. So we can get off right. on a lot of tangents. Um, I just wanted to underscore that the kind of records that uh, both Allison and Max are dealing with like they they're scant there's that mm-hmm. you have yeah. even less than what I had to piece use to piece something together um so it's really exciting and to be able to get these little nuggets where you have testimony is even better 
um, by the 18th century in Virginia, I'm not, I don't even have testimony. I just have um, information from what are called order books. And it's just someone who is summarizing the, mm-hmm. the cases that are coming before the court that day. Mm-hmm. And often it's three lines and then the person's out. And so I'm dealing with some in places like Accomack County, which is on Virginia's Eastern shore. Um, they seem to take um, more copious notes. Mm-hmm. And so I can get more sometimes out of those um, cases that come before the Accomack County courts. But in terms of a lot of what I have, it's just people are showing up in the record, you know, for various transgressions and, and then they're out. And so kind of, yeah. latching on to that and seeing what I can get out of that, but only being able to get out of it so much. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, I have this complete same issue. Um, mm-hmm. Horsemanden's journal is, it, it shouldn't be seen as a transcript. It's really his summary of okay. interactions with enslaved right. people. There is zero original testimony from enslaved people okay. in these. Uh-huh. Um, and the other records that I have from, um, lower court cases are very scant as well. And of course there Mm -hmm. is the ongoing issue of like, these aren't being written or told in the voices of the people that are saying them. It's always this. Yeah. So I am completely simpatico with that, that that issue. Yeah. I just, I, I find that especially a show like Southern charm and Southern charm, New Orleans, um, they open up, such an important space, I think, to do these deep dives into histories and legacies of slavery mm-hmm. and unfree labor. And it's, I think, both really sad at how little has changed, right? The resonances that still exist. Right. Um, but I think that these particular shows are, you know, this example of why we can... Um, have these conversations and and dig in in new ways to this material for a for a popular audience because of Bravo. Right. So let's switch gears. Yeah, you know what I think we should do, Casey. What I think sh- we should lighten it up a bit and have a bonko party. That's exactly what we're doing. <laughs> I feel so like we need applause. Let's try that again. Take two. So. Allison had sent an email saying that you really liked the um, games where it's like a panel. Yeah. Where, you, where it's like group work. So I created a group work game today. And today's game is called Foul on the Play. So I'm going to bring up five different scenarios from bizarre fights, disagreements, moments on Bravo. And uh, collectively, you have to decide together if you're calling this foul on the play or fair play. Does that make sense? Yep. I think so. So you're going to use sports analysis or terminology. Your referees. Thanks. Yeah. Those are the guys in the white and black. Yes. Got it. The the zebras. Mm -hmm. Got it. Got it. (laughs) So the first one up. Would you have crashed Katie and Tom's bridal party at Lisa Vanderpump's house like Kristen and Stassi did? Do you call foul on the play or is that fair play? That's just Mm. getting footage. (laughs) 
Yeah, that was needing a storyline. Yeah. Um, and, all, and to always keep Kristen in the mix, right? Um, yeah, she's, she's ratings. I say go go ahead. You said Max is fair play? Yeah, I say fair play. What do you say, Allison? I think that's fair play as well. Everything is fair in love and housewives, so I would say fair play. <laughs> well, and I feel like the Vanderpump rules in some ways are way more ruthless than the housewives. <laughs> <laughs> with their uh, drama younger. Yeah, less they have more i think they have more energy <laughs> for their they have a lot more energy <laughs> okay but clearly this would be foul on the play if you just tried to do this in your regular daily life without a oh, camera i don't know <laughs> oh i don't know it depends on how likable you are yeah christy's not very likable exactly though. so yeah it would be foul if, if 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 there weren't cameras and Kristen just showed up oh yes it, yeah are, are we supposed to take care cameras out of the equation no i was just wondering if he would still call it fair play if there was no camera and you just crashed somebody's bridal shower oh no that's horrible <laughs> that's terrible okay number two um this last season of the real housewives of new york when ramona invited dorinda to a benefit and then she ditched dorinda at the benefit saying that she was seated at a different table um, so this was clearly Ramona table hopping and social climbing. Do we call this fair play or foul on the play? What do you think, Allison? I think it's a foul. Ramona, I like Ramona couldn't even keep her own reason for doing it straight. <laughs> She's like, Oh, I, I didn't hear it. I didn't hear it. But then the footage comes back and she confirms what table she's where she's supposed to be. Um, but still, just sees a better opportunity and goes for it. That's just who Ramona is. But I, I mean, I don't agree with it. So <laughs> I'd call foul. Yeah, that's a big time foul. I think it's a big time foul. You go with who you came with. You stay with who you came yeah. with. I also think that if Dorinda did the inverse, first of all, it'd be the end of the world. Mm -hmm. But second of all, I think Dorinda would find better places at tables than Ramona thought she would find. Right? Ramona, table hop. You know, we all know these people. We go to banquets with them, and they sit down with you, and then they see the university president across the way, and so they move tables. Mm -hmm. I just think that Dorinda, at the end of the day, would end up at the most prestigious tables because she's a class act. But I also don't think she would do it. jump on somebody because she, right. she likes to make it nice, you know. Yeah, I mean, there's yeah. rule and order to polite society. Mm -hmm. Okay, number three. This last season of Southern Charm New Orleans saw the divorce – of um reagan and i'm blank uh, jeff and jeff yeah jeff charleston i was like only getting the last name i was like charleston charleston reagan and jeff charleston now reagan moved on super fast and very very quickly um was pregnant and marrying the boyfriend that she ditched to marry jeff in the first place um and she really wasn't very forward with any of her friends and this happened like literally within a couple months span. Like foul. she wasn't even whatever you're saying. Foul. She wasn't even out of. She wasn't even all the way out of Jeff's house, and she was foul. she was pregnant and engaged, and then married by the end of the season. So is this foul on the play? Fair play? It's a foul. There's no question. It was such a foul, and it was even worse with the cameraman with them keeping the cameras in Jeff's face as he had a public kind of breakdown and heart. I know, poor Jeff. I want to. I want to agree. I want to agree. Oh. I just have one question about this. Does she get to make the choice, though, about who she wants to be married to and have children with? 
or am I completely off base no, for like the, seeing she the, the like the choice? If okay. you're not in love with someone, you shouldn't marry them. Okay. And you are fully within your rights to move on. I think we're looking at and maybe look, maybe we're we're kind of being very rigid here. Um, I feel like sometimes part you gotta of this move is, out of the house, get rid of the old stuff before you bring in the new. I think part of this is also how she was treating this with her friends, right? So Tamika was very upset with her. Like, can you please just tell me what's happening, mm-hmm. right? And so this is why Tamika almost doesn't stand in the wedding because she's like, I don't even know mm-hmm. what's happening with you. Like, you won't talk to me at all. Like, you've created this whole new life. And so so I think part of this is not so much necessarily as the timeline of her moving on, it's but the, the, way, the, the way that she treated um, her community in the process. I think. I think that's right. I think, you know, she can marry whomever she wants and have children with whomever she wants. But I also feel like there is along the lines of that callousness is she had this understanding of her and Jeff's post divorce relationship. Oh, we're friends. We tell each other everything and not really considering how he might really be feeling. And she clearly wasn't telling him everything. and she wasn't telling him everything and, and kind of making it like they were friends and, and not thinking about kind of all of the kind of emotional struggles that they had had as a married couple and how those probably still existed and that this news would maybe exacerbate those. And so I think that's where yeah. the lack of care around doing it, I think, is where, well, where the foul comes from. And then from. she even had the nerve, right, to berate him for having this Friendsgiving party where she wasn't invited, right? right? <laughs> so, like, this is this other moment where it's like, you left him. Like, you're pregnant. You're mm-hmm. getting married. Like, I don't understand. Like, I can't follow. Right. This was a long way for me to be like, you just need to give a rap cheat so that anyone who might feel bad for her, like, yeah. <laughs> That's my slow backpedal away to be like, sorry. <laughs> no, I'm on your side now. Okay, you so you guys over. called foul on that panel? Yes. Yeah. Okay. So the next one. Chef Mila's nachos. Was Captain <laughs> Sandy too patient to keep her around for another charter? Um, should she, Should Sandy have fired her that night? Um, do you think that this would have been different if Sandy saw her also lick the steaks and then microwave them? So is this fair play, foul play? Like, and this is like how and Sandy, Sandy firing her. Yeah. Like how did like the way that Sandy handled it? Was she too patient? Would you have given her the ax faster? I wouldn't mm. have hired her. Didn't Sandy have her do a dish? I'm sorry. Didn't the production company? Oh, that's right. She probably did audition and make some dishes and they said, this is great. Please come on the show. I don't know if they went that far. I do know that on her resume, she took photos from like Getty images. Oh, she catfished, right? She catfished. Yeah, I know that. Yeah. And I think I've heard Hannah talk about this, that there was not a lot of vetting of Mila. So So this is a true storyline, not just made for TV storyline. Yeah, they've all said this was true. Well, then it must be. Yeah, then it must be true. I mean, true. I saw it on reality television. It must yeah. be true. Well, it's got to be true, right? But do you think Do you think Sandy was, I mean, Sandy is a patient person, but do you think she was too patient in this case after seeing the first dinner nachos? Was this fair play foul on the play? I would say that it's giving Mila another chance is just kind of who Sandy, Captain Sandy is. 
So I think that waiting was probably fair play in that case, maybe. Um, Because the thing is, too, that Captain Sandy kept saying, like, I didn't have all the information all at the one time. It kind of came trickling into, into her. Right. And I think maybe if she had had all of the information, like the licking of the steak and all that, then maybe <laughs> she would have acted faster. I'm going to go ahead and say she would have acted had she known about the licking of the steak. And so. the, the, it it yeah. wasn't just the licking. Then she microwaved them like forever. Yeah. <laughs> I, think we, I think it's safe to say Kevin Sandy, fair. Mila, just in general, foul. Just foul on the play. Any play, any team, any game. I, I agree. I however, definitely agree. The however, historians, however. However, I do think she deserves a yellow card for this as like a warning to be like. Like soccer rules? Yeah, because she should have been listening to Hannah and she has like a history of like not and and just sort of uh, pushing her opinions to the side. Mila Probably Hannah. Hannah. I, I, I see her. Oh, Mila should have been listening to Hannah. No, 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 no. So, Sandy. Oh, Sandy should have listened to Hannah when Hannah was saying this to mm-hmm. her. And I see a pattern of her not uh, on the show. Yeah. This last season, mm-hmm. and I think the one before that where she was like, I didn't think I was like harsh enough on you at points with the whole like Conrad thing. Yeah. Uh, which, I mean, that was a really bad example. She deserved to like get reprimanded for that. But like thinking about how... Um, you think Captain Sandy was reluctant to yeah. take Hannah's um, assessment of the situation. Yeah, that. <laughs> um, so like a yellow card, but you can still play. So we're saying fair play for Captain Sandy? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. The last round of this Bonko party. Jeff firing Jenny. And also, you have to consider the way it happened, mm-hmm. it right? The drama. The, set it up for the listeners. So, you're like John Madden. <laughs> I mean, there's so many levels to this relationship, too. This relationship is particularly interesting as far as Bravo history goes, right? Like the theme song for Andy Cohen's "Watch What Happens Live" is actually mm-hmm. like a rap that Jenny Poulos made right. on the fly, um, flipping out was an early Bravo show that they kind of came up with Andy. Um, now Jeff and Jenny have always had kind of this up and down relationship, but they'd been friends for a really long time. And actually the reason that flipping out got the show in the first place, it was, it was Jenny's show. Right now, Jenny had taken a maternity leave And it seemed like when she came back, part of this problem was Jeff did not want to reinstate her. So it almost seemed like there was some um, suspect labor practices happening Mm -hmm. at Jeff Lewis Designs in the midst of all of this. Um, And finally, this gets wrapped up in some sort of argument about Jenny's acting career. Jeff is really condescending. Jenny gets upset with him because she gets upset with him. He decides that he doesn't like the way she reacted to him and he essentially fires her over lunch. But she thinks that she's coming together with one of her best friends to like talk through the fight and like resolve it and move on. And instead he like lets her go at lunch. So fair play, foul on the play, like wherever you want to take this. Where do you want to start, Allison? Um, I would say it's a foul on the play just because it's 
Jeff Lewis. Um, <laughs> I, I mean, and I mean, not just because, because it, it was awful and they had this long history and, um, you know, she was completely blindsided, but I will also say that despite it being a file on the play, I think Jenny was lucky to get out of there. <laughs> yeah. Um, and that it was, it, it was probably better for her not to be, um, working for him anymore. So I almost got the feeling that Jeff got a little big for his britches thinking that he would still keep his show even without Jenny, mm-hmm. but like there is like nothing in works for like new seasons of flipping out. Right. Like I think that he went through his own like losing it phase. Right. Cause like right mm-hmm. after this season, he engaged, went through their own divorce. That's still very messy and contentious with custody yeah. and all that sort of stuff. But I think Jeff thought that like he could get rid of Jenny and like, just keep going. Jeff overplayed yeah. his hand. He, he really just over Jeff overplayed mm-hmm. his hand. Um, I mean, I'm going to say foul on the play, too, because not because it's Jeff, because I've seen this entire relationship. Well, but maybe fair, fair, because they needed to break up. Mm-hmm. They needed she needed to go off and have it. But a was chance his behavior healthy. is what I'm oh, saying. I mean, like his, the behavior, his behavior was is never fair. So uh, universally, I, I will say fair play, but his behavior is never fair. So I will say foul on the play. Yeah, I say foul. I think he is just completely reprehensible. The way that he just treats employees in general. Yeah, and, and the so. jokes that he plays. I mean, yeah. he's the original oh, yeah. mean person, right? Mm-hmm. Um, the jokes that he thinks are so funny are, are really terrible. Yeah. It's not, not, I mean, you know, we're all redeemable, so. It makes me wonder how much the cameras change those interactions because, like, if a boss did that without a camera on, I don't know if some of the things he does would be... I think he's the way he is. Like, if you read, like, just the news about him and his divorce with Gage, like, he actually is always seeming like there's horrible stuff happening Mm -hmm. because he can't, like, I think he definitely has, like, a narcissistic personality Mm -hmm. disorder. And so he can't stop himself from launching into these monologues. And one of the latest ones is that he bad mouthed like every parent at Monroe's preschool and so his daughter Monroe who's like three years old was kicked out of this very prestigious private preschool in Los Angeles and so it's been a scramble to get her back into preschool and like the divorce agreement is falling apart and he like because he can't get along with Gage and so it's I, I kind of feel like Jeff Lewis is always Jeff fair enough then foul on him do you think that too, Allison? Yes. I'm open yeah, for I changing that opinion, but I I don't think there's any changing. I don't think you need to have that opinion changed. <laughs> <laughs> well then that concludes your Bonco party, Allison. Woo, congratulations. Did we all win? Well, you you were all winners. You called three fairs and two fouls. Wow. Now you are all official Bravo referees. Wonderful. You can add it to your CV. That was going to say. Perfect. I want to get the referee zebra stripes, but like with like glitter. Yeah, I need to have sparkles. Oh, that would be good. Everything I do. Mm -hmm. Sequence. You could could wear them when you present at conferences. It would be great. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Okay. So coming back to this interview, talking about one of the people that drives me most nuts in the Bravo universe, 
I feel like we can't have an episode with you where we're drawing these parallels to unfree labor in the 17th, 18th centuries without mentioning the way that Ramona treats the people that she identifies as the quote unquote help wherever she goes. Mm-hmm. Um, you can take this wherever you would like to. Okay. Um, yeah, I was glad. Um, I'm glad you brought that up because uh, she's another one that, that fits into this kind of privilege and power and assumptions of what certain people in certain places that look a certain way are to do for her um, at the drop of a hat and whenever whenever she needs these things done. And um, the thing with Ramona is her privilege is never not on display. Um but I think these particular moments when they go on trips, um, you know, it's, it's when it's out in full force. Um, and I have to say, I mean, it's upsetting to watch the mistreatment um, that, that goes on in these shows in various ways, always. But I think kind of her, her treatment of, of the quote-unquote, quote-unquote help um, is particularly upsetting and unsettling to watch. Um, and I don't know what it is about it. I don't know if it's because she just really inherently feels like they're there to unpack her bags and, and cater to her. I don't know what it is, but it, it's obnoxious. Um, and the thing is that all the other women just let it happen. Oh, Ramona's just being Ramona and she's, she's got, you know, this person or that person, I'm unpacking her, her bags. And nobody ever calls her on it. Yeah. To me, Ramona comes across as, as almost this like mistress, you know, character in these situations, the way that she is ordering these people around, the way that she is so dismissive and condescending to mm-hmm. them. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, where it is, it is always jarring, where you think, wait, 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 we are in 2019 and like there's uh like a complete lack of, of like humanity that she shows yes. these people. If that, if that makes sense. Yeah. The way that she yeah. asks um, the, or tells the help to like put away her luggage and stuff. Like when they're in Morocco. Mm-hmm. Is, yeah. Absolutely gross. And that becomes like a plot point where the other housewives are saying to her, like, you can't talk to people like this. I feel like then when they went to Miami, in this last season, Sonia was trying to even explain to her. No, they haven't. They, these people have names and like, this yeah. is their name. <laughs> you know, I mean, Sonia is giving directions on social cues. Not only that, but yeah. mis- mispronouncing that poor man's name over and over again. And then just saying, well, I can't pronounce it how you want me to. So I'm just going to call you this and you're going to be okay with it. <laughs> yes. Oh my gosh. And it's tied to his tip because like, yeah, it's all tied. Right. Because he thinks if I don't satisfy this woman to like whatever she wants, whatever unreasonable thing she wants to do, like I'm not going to get five bucks or 10 bucks or, you know, 20 bucks if he's like really lucky. (laughs) Well, and I think in this particular scenarios like these, it's important to note that even though this is really different from those dynamics of unfree labor in the 17th, 18th centuries, there is a lot of um, vulnerability in people Mm -hmm. working in these spaces, even in the 21st century, right? Like um, 
especially hotel staff, for example, they might be here sending money back home in another country, mm-hmm. right? They, they're probably also worried about um, potential issues of deportation, depending on where they are and like where they're from, right? So there's still right. a large vulnerability in these um, workers that we see captured in these scenes with Ramona too. Yes, absolutely. There are a few moments that stand out where the policing of workers is front and center, such as on Real Housewives of Dallas, when um, Cameron checks the bags of her housekeeper after she cleans the house. And the second one that comes to mind was when the Real Housewives of Beverly Hills um, find out about Lisa Vanderpump's lie detector test because one of Kyle's friends has made the construction crew working on her house go take a lie detector test because some things have gone missing. Um, How do these types of moments help us talk about class, status, and racial elements of distrust, surveillance, and the experience of unfree laborers in the 18th century? Um, Yeah, I think this goes back to kind of the intimacy of the household and, you know, trusting people, um, with certain things, but not trusting them with others and having these assumptions, even that, well, I'm paying them to do this work. They need to be grateful, but I also need to make sure that while they're in my home, they're not, you know, taking things or, um, you know, taking advantage of this opportunity that I'm giving them to clean my house, which is ridiculous, Um, which is a ridiculous line of thinking for, for these people, of course. Um, But I think that, you know, it's just this, I'm, I'm gonna, there's only so much trust I can give someone of a lower economic status or of someone of, of a different, um, you know, race or ethnicity than me. And so I have to kind of, assume the worst um, when in the case of, you know, I'm not sure Cameron ever found that anything had gone missing. I, I feel like this was just kind of a rule she had with the people coming in and out of her house um, that, that she would check their, you know, workers bags as, as they, as they left. Um, and she says it so nonchalantly as, if, well, yeah, don't, doesn't everybody do this, mm-hmm. you know, and in, in the terms of, you know, finding out, in Real Housewives of Beverly Hills about, you know, these construction workers that have to go, um, you know, there's something, I mean, it's terribly offensive to to have people that you're trusting to build your home, but also assuming the worst of them um, just because they happen to be construction workers and may not be white um, is, you know, it's just this, this interplay between trust and distrust and power um, in these more intimate household spaces. Would this be an example of where we see the afterlife of slavery? In Um, terms of of kind of these systems of surveillance and distrust? um, Possibly. Um, I think there are are other... um, examples that might track more closely kind of into, into kind of these 21st century situations. Um, 
And that has to do less with surveillance in the household and more with kind of community surveillance. Right. Mm -hmm. So let me push this a little further. There are three different but interrelated storylines on the last season of Southern Charm New Orleans that involve police violence against black men. Mm -hmm. And we know, obviously, as a country, we've been dealing with um, violent police violence against black men and women and um you know, basically anyone who's disempowered in some ways. Can you talk to us about these story arcs or and how they connect to you, a chapter you have on 1705 Servant and Slave Code in Virginia? Yeah, so um, I have a chapter on runaways. Um, runaway and slave laborers, runaway servants. Um, and so the, the project as a whole is looking at this 1705 Servant and Slave Law um, and so in particular in this chapter, it's the, it's the statutes dealing with, um, with runaways and, and I found it, um, you know, that these laws, the laws, this law itself does a very good job in certain places of making very clear the differences, um, between treatment and punishment of temporarily bound white and mixed race servants and enslaved laborers. And this law is very long. It has many, about over 40 sections in it. And in a lot of cases, things are very clear. Um, in the sections on runaways, things are less clear. And they often just refer to the laws against runaways. And they don't follow that up with runaway servant or runaway slave. Um, and so, so on the ground, how these things work is that these laws that um, are meant to kind of compel the entire community, right, to get involved in the return of runaways, whether they be temporarily bound or, or enslaved, um, are very clear. And there, there are rewards for people who take up runaways and return them and, and people who show up in the courts several times for bringing back runaways because they get comp monetarily compensated every time they do. Um, and so it's really bringing the community together. And what I'm arguing is that by the 18th century, there's really a culture of surveillance um, that is solidified in Virginia. And, and, and it's people who don't own any form of unfree labor there, also, but they're being asked to participate. Um, and they often buy in and they, they often do readily participate. And so in terms of the surveillance culture uh, and policing of, um, of kind of black bodies, um, is, this, is, this is a link that, that we can see, um, in particular in, in Southern Charm, New Orleans. Um, there's, there's a moment um, early on where John Moody and Barry and Justin are talking about their own experiences um, with the police over, you know, their life, their lifetimes and, and kind of some, some troubling moments that, and run-ins that they had with the police growing up. Um, and this, then part of that carries over because uh, Tamika and Barry's son gets pulled over on the way home and he seems to be kind of dismissing it like, yeah, he just told me I was going too fast and that was it. And Tamika brings up to Barry, like, this is a moment that you have to talk to him about being a person of color, um, a man of color in New Orleans and just in 
America and, and how, how you have to behave a certain way possibly for, to head off some, some dangers that might come, um, his way. And then the, the third was, um, John Moody, who's an artist, had this art installation and has some, he works with a, a community, a youth community in, in New Orleans and had some of them, um, kind of reenact some run-ins with the police that, that kind of end in, you know, with a fake gun, obviously, but one of the boys being shot. Um, and they were all really, I mean, it's, it's a show that, that goes more deeply into these issues than, than some other shows um, that, that are on, on Bravo. And, and I found there some really um, compelling through lines uh, with kind of the communities in, of surveillance um, historically and what that has turned into um, in, in kind of the 20, in 21st century cities across the United States. One of the things that really struck me about John Moody's art show was that Reagan was one of the only white people at this show. And the Mm -hmm. way that like you see people's emotional response in their faces, right? It's so Mm -hmm. clear that like Reagan doesn't really quite understand this on the very intimate level that, the rest of the cast, like the, her friends experience mm-hmm. this as just their daily reality. And, and these facial reactions, right? The emotional response that the camera is capturing makes this very clear. Yeah, I, I agree with that. It's, and it's troubling um, that, that she, that her reactions were, Whereas they were, um, and that she, she doesn't necessarily understand or hasn't tried to understand, um, kind of what this means for her friends. Right. I would say less than troubling. It's telling. It's yes. telling, right? Mm-hmm. Um, yes. Cause she's also going through a bunch that season to talk about how she's a great Southern hostess. Uh-huh. Well, there it is right there. Ugh. Right. There it is right there. Because she hosts a party in her new there home with the with the fiance. Mm-hmm. And she, you know, makes a big deal about the fact that she's going to cook it all even though she's pregnant. You know, uh-huh. because she's, she is like the quintessential Southern host. Right. Yeah. Gross. So that is, that is like that very stark contrast that's happening mm-hmm. within the cast. And in these really intimate moments right it be, it's very jarring almost as a viewer to see it that they're yeah. both bearing the weight of their histories separately but in this similar space and not re- like that she just does not see it or if she does she embraces it right well can we say that this is yeah. what's happening in these communities writ large well, I in mean, first ways. of all, let's talk about her, her white privilege, right? Mm-hmm. She doesn't mm-hmm. have to worry about any of this. So not mm-hmm. just, right. so I guess that's what's troubling, right, Allison? She doesn't have to right. worry yeah. about any of this, but it's also telling, right, that she would be so shocked. And even the conversation is around her and her shock and not what the African-Americans on the ground, are, even at the art show, are thinking and feeling. Um, I mean, we get a little bit from John about why he put the show together, um, mm-hmm. I just think that the takeaway, if, if you're not careful, can be, uh-oh, 
Reagan was uncomfortable. Well, Reagan, right. you've made me uncomfortable all season. You've, right. just, you've just made me uncomfortable. So yeah. I wasn't trying to make the takeaway Reagan. No, no, being no, 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 no. I'm not saying you were. I would have talked to you off offset for that. That's not what I'm saying. <laughs> I was just trying to say that it's like it's so shocking. No, I'm working. I'm work. My my days of being raised as a child in Salt Lake City, Utah, are flashing in front of me. Yeah. And I'm just thinking about the look on some white friends' faces when someone would call me the N word. And they just, not only did they not get it, they don't, didn't want to be associated enough to get it. That's, that, so that's what's flashing back when I think about Reagan and, and how uncomfortable she was. Well, and I don't really want to let Jeff off the hook, but Jeff didn't have, like, to me, when I watched that scene, Jeff looks like he is attempting to grapple with this, right? Mm-hmm. Reagan just looks bored. And like, I, mean, I don't understand, like, just- Reagan kind of looks like, I don't understand what we're talking about. Like, right, she just seems like she's... Um, needing like a, I don't know, like a coffee break or something. Like she seems like, oh, I'm over it. Right. Where Jeff seems much more engaged in what his friends, right. right. His direct community is, is dealing with. Right. So it, it seems to be like, they're not, um, the two white cast members of mm-hmm. that cast are clearly, mm-hmm. I think, engaging this in different ways. I mean, I'm glad that they did this storyline. Cause if I had to watch one more, um, ghost tour or I mean they did the ghost tour before right. but, but if I had to look at one more episode where you know race kind of wasn't factoring in and you're in New right. Orleans I just I, I had questions it's like watching sex in the city right <laughs> you watch it and you think huh I didn't see an entire person of color on the entire mm-hmm. show in friends. New York yeah it's like friends. friends right yeah 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 well are we all ready to segue into our Bravo news update Thank you, Max. Today's story headline from uh, U.S. Weekly. Vicki Gunvalson doesn't approve of raunchy talk from RHOC cast. When I created this franchise 15 years ago. Say it again. Sorry, I had a pop up. When I created this franchise 15 years ago and my love tank was empty. <laughs> so uh, the title, <laughs> the title, Vicki Gumbelson doesn't approve of raunchy talk from RHOC cast. When I created this franchise 15 years ago, it was about our lives. So Vicki is saying that she um, is tripling down, in fact, on all the names she's been calling Bronwyn. Um, that she says that now with her not like leading the show, that there is quote, an overload of crying and raunchy talk and behavior about sexual exploits. And she says this should be kept private and not seen or heard on television. She goes on to say this, this article, like, and Vicky is like tweeting it up a storm on social media. Of course, she's whooping it up. She on is. Twitter. Yes. Um, <laughs> she says, um, quote, it was about our lives and having the opportunity to showcase the world, the privileged lifestyle we lead. It's turning yeah. out to be all about divorce, rental houses, threesomes, and other ridiculous things. So what? Foul on the play. <laughs> <laughs> 
Foul on the play. All three of us just threw red Foul cards. Foul on the play. This is the woman who got on the first few seasons talking about her love tank not being filled. Oh, and then here comes Brooks. Now my love tank is filled enough. She also did have a rental house because remember Gina Keogh had somebody working in the house and I think Vicky was going to sell it or whatever. But so technically Vicky was a landlord for a bit and that worked out horribly and it like messed up her relationship with Gina mm-hmm. Keogh. Um, Vicky's divorce was one of the first on the shows. <laughs> and, well, not only oh, that, but but her, like when I created the show, she didn't create this show. <laughs> <laughs> Max, do you have our special button with um, one oh. second? It might get a little loud, Allison. Okay. So that was from their trip to Whistler. <laughs> so clearly there's been like threesome allegations and raunchy talk and sex exploits. You came I with mean, the footnotes. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. I mean, this is also to say, right, that Tamara has had, what was it, her like sex dinner where they talked about... Um, you know, their sexual preferences at the Valentine's Day dinner table with Heather Dubrow and, you know, so there's been so much of all of this all along. Like, it's like crazy to me that she is like, this is brand new. This was always supposed to be about our privileged lives. She, her and Don shared the Lake Havasu house prior to getting divorced and they used to cruise around and get drunk or drive uh, drive their boats and drink beer constantly and teach their kids it was okay to hide beer cans if the cops pull you over. Like, this was filmed on the show. Like, these are those people. And she has the audacity, the gall, <laughs> the nerve. <laughs> so that's our Bravo News update. Yeah. Oh, although there was a couple other stories of late... Um, Mila Kunis expressed that she would love to be a real housewife of Beverly Hills. Ashton Kutcher does not want that. He does not want to be televised this way. Um, well, Demi already said everything about Ashton in her book. So it's not like Bravo is going to give us something new if, if Mila's on the show. But, you know, maybe Ashton Kutcher is trying to follow that Wendy Williams lead of if you want to keep your marriage together, right. you stay it's off true. the housewives. It's true. Um, the other thing, Captain Lee has said something like he would like Jax on the boat because he could just trap oh, Jax no. there on the boat. I would love that. I can't Jax tell. Jax from Below Deck or no, Jax from Vanderpump Rules? Jax Vanderpump Taylor, Rules. Vanderpump Rules. And so I can't, I, the way I read, I read it a couple different times and I was like, I think Captain Lee's suggesting that he wants Jax to be a deckhand. Uh, that he might enjoy Jax as a deckhand. Why should we assume that? I want to see Jax clean rooms. Well, because I think it, because he was about like, oh, I can just like kind of torture him all day. Yeah. But so, but he's like on the, but you know, Captain Lee isn't usually in the interior. I don't know. I don't think Jax would really like Kate Chastain <laughs> telling him what to do. <laughs> Something about that seems like it would bother a guy like Jax. Well, and Jax isn't very inclined to work. So that yeah. makes working on a boat rather difficult. <laughs> yes. Okay. So those are my updates. So. Thank you, panel, for weighing in on all of the news. So, Allison, tell us what's next for you. What do you want people to know about your upcoming work? What are you working on? How can people get in touch with you if they want to learn more? Okay, well, I'm working away on my book. um, And uh, in a few weeks, I'll be presenting part of my first chapter 
um, at the Southern Historical Association um, meeting in Louisville. Um, and so I'm kind of working through a new chapter on uh, specifically the 1705 servant and slave law um, and its various iterations throughout the 18th century. Um, and um, you can find me, uh, you can always, on my University of Oregon faculty page, and my email is amadar at uoregon.edu. Um, I am also on Twitter, and uh, my, you can find me there at, at Allison Madar, all one word, no punctuation. Um, so, so that's how people can get in touch if they, if they want to. As always, you can find us at historiansonhousewives.com, where you can propose your own episode topic, ask us questions, and send us feedback. Remember to like and review the podcast on your listening platform. We are now on Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Spotify. Follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at historiansh. We live tweet Sunday through Thursday. Thank you, Allison Madar. This show is brought to you with the support by Barbara and Mark Spear, Saddleback Community College, Christina Hinkle, Christina Gamberport, Judd Merlaski, Pete Murray, Yvonne Bellardes, Cody Baker, Molly Callahan, Dr. Joaquin Galarza, Courtney Crow, Laura Loper, Kim Bettendorf, and Louis Asio de Dios. And remember, scholars do bravo too. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.